And welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the podcast that covers every single horror movie franchise. One movie in one episode at a time, whether we like it or not some weeks. I am your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my co-host, Lindsay Travis. Lindsay, how are we doing today? We're good. We're ready to talk about Bloody Mary. Woo! Woo! This week's movie, it is a movie that we watched. It is one of those. It definitely qualifies as a movie. That's true. People starred in it. Someone directed them. Somebody wrote it. Someone wrote them a check to say, make this movie. And people watched it. All of these are facts. Uh, We are here to put another series to rest as we wrap up the Urban Legend trilogy with the 2005 supernatural thriller and direct-to-video title, Urban Legend, Bloody Mary. Huh. So, had so, you seen this one before um, you knew you were going to record this episode? I didn't even know this movie existed until we started to look at movies that we should do for the podcast, to be quite honest with you. That's fair. How about I, like, yourself? Yeah, I knew it existed, um, but I had not seen it. I... Yeah, I think when we were talking like last week, it was like I felt like I'd seen two. It was like probably like at a sleepover party, blah, blah, blah. And I feel like by the time this one came out, it just, I never saw it. Yeah. It's, there were like, this was a time period where there were so many movies coming out like straight to DVD every single week in Mm -hmm. order to like just get content. Like you still had blockbuster video back then. There was no real streaming to speak of. So you had Netflix dropping in movies by the mail and then you had like your blockbuster so there was always this 
this need to get like as much content out there as humanly possible for people. Um, and yeah, you would get titles like this. It was just, you know, it is what it is at this point. It is what it is. That's um, so true. And you're so right about like, of course we lament walking around the video store and picking something. And I've said that I watched so many of these like sleepover parties, but I also was thinking this week with all of the movie theater changes and what we might uh, be walking into that there's even been such a shift. There was a time even before this one and even before this shift where you would just like go to the movies. It didn't matter what was playing. You didn't mm-hmm. go to the movies to see the new DC movie or whatever. It was like, hey, do you guys want to see a movie tonight? Yeah, what's playing? And so you would see all these movies. Like it came up because we were talking about the movie Crank. And I was like, yeah, I saw Crank in theaters because it was just like something to do. Would I run to the theaters for a movie like Crank now? No. But at the time you just looked it up. And I think so a lot of these direct-to-video sequels I hadn't seen because so much of this stuff I consumed by just being like hey should we go see a movie mm-hmm. um and so I never unless it was something I'd like heard of from the theater I didn't see a lot of direct-to-video stuff I don't think did you ever just like go to the movies and not know what you were going to see beforehand I remember all the time doing that a lot is like a teenager and in my 20s like I don't know what's playing I don't really care I'm just going to go to the movies with like a bunch of friends and We'll pick what we want to see when we get there. All the time. I remember it's so weird and I never noticed it until I was thinking about how the Warner Brothers HBO thing was going to change theaters. I I didn't notice how it's changed so much already that, um, yeah, we would go to the movies and you would know things would always play at seven-ish and nine-ish and you'd stand and like look up at the board. Do you know what I mean? Where you would like look up at that like little light board where it would be like, this movie's playing at 7.30 and again at 8. And you would stop and be like, oh, it's playing at 7.15. It's also playing at 7.45. It's 7.10. Should we wait till the 7.45 so we can get better seats? Like you would just browse. That's another thing that's gone now too because everything is like picked, you know, if for the theaters that are open, you you pick your seat ahead of time. So like rushing to the theater so you don't miss anything uh, or so you like would get a good seat. I, you know, I remember too, like I had like a friend, like a movie buddy Mm -hmm. who I worked with for years and 90% of our friendship was based on going to the movies together Mm -hmm. um, or like watching movies. He was like the first person I know um, to have um, like a a projector in his apartment. So, you know, we both worked in like the home theater industry and he actually like totally pimped out his room for like a really nice projection system. Um, but we would like just go to the theater and like watch whatever was out that week. Um, he was the guy that I would go with when Marvel released, uh, the Avengers, Mm -hmm. they had like AMC did a whole day of, of Marvel movies for phase one, starting with Iron Man right through the premiere. And they had the dude who plays Coulson do little intros in between, like in character. Um, so so it was, it was really fun. It was really, really fun. Um, so we went to like everything together and that was our whole friendship basically, you know? And then when we stopped going to the movies together, kind of like, we're not really sadly, not <laughs> really hanging out anymore. We'll um, always have the MCU marathon. What do you think of this whole, you know, before we get, and listeners, as you know, the longer it takes us to get into talking about the actual movie, you kind of get an idea of what we think about the movie. So <laughs> there you go. Um, what are your thoughts? I like, guess, because HB, a Time Warner dropped a massive bombshell this week 
on everybody saying that, hey, look, in 2021, we're not just going to do Wonder Woman on our service at no extra charge, but everything we have slated for theaters in 2021 is going to come out the same day on our service HBO Max. I don't, I will say I'm having a lot of complicated feelings. I think, of course, um, I think the reason my feelings are so complicated is I don't know what um, this means in a couple different directions. So firstly, I'm kind of like, oh no, the death of cinemas. And then a lot of people push back that, no, this isn't the death of cinemas. And I think the four kind of angles I see is like death of cinemas or death of needing to go to the cinema, good or bad. And then also, no, this actually is no big deal. It's a panic plan. It's going to go away. And is that good or bad? So I think there's, when I say there's like four perspectives, you know, I'm reading these articles about how like, it's not as bad as you think. And I'm like, well, what's, what's the bad part? Like, what do I think is bad? So personally, I think it's bad. I love the theater. I'm sad that, you know, there won't be the big theater releases. I think there'll be things that will be affected. Like we're not going to get these types of large blockbusters because they won't get their money back. I think that it sucks because I love indie theaters and I think this is really bad for them and that sucks. And, you know, I love having theaters walking distance from me and I think it's bad for them and that sucks. So there's that piece of me that is very much placated or that is made to feel much better about all these people saying, no, this is a panic reaction. It's not permanent. It's going to be fine. Don't worry because they'll never make their money back. So they need theater. So don't worry about it. But then I also see so many perspectives from people being like, it's not accessible to me where I live. I don't get to see a lot of these large theater releases or theaters are difficult for me to get to, or they're very expensive. Um, so this actually makes movies more accessible to so many more people. And I'm like, okay, I guess. So, um, and that, that's also a very fair point. I don't mean to say, to glibly say, okay, I guess. Um, so I don't really know. I, I'm right now I'm kind of sad because I'm so old school. Like just like as, just like I was sad about the closing of video stores. And just like every time people tell me digital comics are the future, I get sad and don't want it. Um, I'm, I'm in that place right now. Yeah. How about you? I'm in a, a mixed place as well. I mean, I talked last week about how, for me, the movie going experience, unless I'm at a festival or unless I'm at one of the smaller theaters in the Boston area that specializes in like second run movies or specialty mm -hmm. screenings like mm -hmm. you know it would be the place that you would get to go see kill list when it was released and that was the only way i was going to get to see that movie in a theater right. um it's not going to really affect the theaters that i really love to go to the most do you know what i mean okay. like it's something where it's like the brattle theater in harvard square isn't going to care whether or not um bat, you know matt reeves the batman comes out on 5 million screens or not, because they're not going to show that movie. Um, they might show like the mask of Zorro that weekend, um, mm -hmm. since Batman is so influenced by that film. Um, but there is something, you know, I'm the kind of person that I either go opening weekend or I wait for it to come out on video. Mm -hmm. Like there's yeah. just, I don't have it in me to be like, you know, it's been out for three weeks and so now I finally want to go catch it. I keep planning to do that. And then I just never make it out the door. Yeah. It but, like dies on your watch list kind of yeah. thing. But there is something about going opening weekend for a movie that like everyone is like seeing, you know, um, David Gordon Green's Halloween in 2018 on opening weekend right. was fantastic because everybody that was there like really wanted to be there to see it. That's the thing point. is there's like an energy to that. And I know mm -hmm. some people, um, 
don't like, you know, vocal rowdy audiences or things like that. I mean, I think there's an energy that you get to share. Like there was a video making rounds not long ago of everyone going crazy at the Avengers um, and game screening when Cap gets the hammer and like just screaming and cheering mm-hmm. and like, I love that energy. That's awesome um, energy. Yeah. yeah that's, the, like, that's a different energy than like, I'm going to talk on my cell phone. Oh yeah. That, I have whisper. zero time for that energy. Right. If I see your cell phone, I'm booting it and you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's, that's, I don't mean the like talking and not paying attention and the like rowdy, annoying people, but I'm talking about like, you know, people being engaged and um, again, back on the, where you used to just go and see whatever was playing. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in high school, all the high schools in my neighborhood, we'd all end up going to like the same theater every Friday night and seeing movies. And so I might have, I feel like I might've talked about that, but um, we would see all these like ridiculous movies on the big screen. Just like we were, I was, yeah, I'm pretty sure I talked about this, but, um, and there was so much energy in like the whole high school and all the other neighboring high schools. It was like a whole bunch of 17 year olds or however old we were, 16, 15, which maybe was everyone's nightmare but we'd flood in there and we'd all scream at the same time. And like, there's so much fun in that. There's a lot of fun in that. I saw, um, uh, what's the John Krasinski scary movie? A Quiet Place. Yeah, A Quiet Place. Um, And I mean, I was lukewarm on the movie as a whole, but um, seeing A Quiet Place and having an entire theater full, a lot of people were worried about that because it's supposed to be so quiet. I loved being in a room with that many people doing their best to be Mm -hmm. quiet. I thought it was such a cool experience and energy to hear everyone being quiet all together, which to me is silly that like, even like we all got our popcorn and you could kind of sense everyone saving their popcorn for louder moments. And like, I thought that was a really fun energy to be a part of that. It, to me, it, it gave so much more power to the movie that it was like, it, forced us all to be conscious of how much noise we were making. And that was more powerful than if I just like watched it on my couch. One of my favorite movie going experiences, and I go to the movies alone a lot because Mm, yeah. Well, actually the two ways I would experience movies the most, like probably one of the ways that my daughter Ada and I have really bonded with one another is through movies. Like we would just go to the movies on a whim all the time, like whatever was out. Um, you know, we, 4th of July, we go to visit my mom for a little bit on the way home. Let's go see Spider-Man Homecoming just because, um, when she was three, I took her to the Brattle to go see Enter the Dragon, um, you know, and like walking back to the car, I had her on my shoulders and she's like karate chopping me in the skull, you know, and those are, you know, the moments that I will, as a dad, like cherish forever. Um, You know, like her first scary movie, like how proud she was to sit through like a scary movie in the theaters. Um, Mother's Day one year, the Somerville Theater, they have like a 900 seat theater. There's a lot of live performances. They did a, not for last, more of like a vaudeville performance um, for the Wizard of Oz on Mother's Day, where they had people like going up in the down the aisle, like the old cigarettes girl used to do, like all dressed up like that, selling popcorn yep. and soda. They oh, had man, like a vaudeville that. show. So uh, it was like yeah. really fun. Like those are the things that I'll remember for the rest of my life. Like they were a really good way to bond. And I usually go to movies alone um, just because like when you're married and have a kid and the kid is very young, a night out at the movies, by the time you like get a, a drink beforehand, get snacks, pay the babysitter, it's a hundred dollar night out. Yeah, it's a um, whole. And that's one of the reasons I don't think that I weep for the you know possible death of things like AMC and Regal right. theaters is 
And this is partly the fault of studios because, you know, instead of having movies that, you know, maybe make a $10 million movie that makes $30 million, like it's all, unless you can make one movie that will turn into three movies, it mm. seems like there's very little interest in a studio doing that theatrically now, which kind yeah. of sucks. I think you're right. And I think there's so much to that. Um, but on the whole theater thing, like, so I won't, we don't, uh, we might have AMC here, but I think it was gobbled up, but the Canadian theater chain, um, I obviously have mixed feelings on the big chain, you mm -hmm. know, that is what it is versus the Indies, et cetera. And I was actually talking about it uh, this week. The, I don't think that it's exclusively to our Canadian theater chain, but it sounds like our chain might be the only one that does it if that makes sense but there's branded um combos so like your popcorn comes like i was talking about it because my popcorn for birds of prey came in harley quinn's mallet <laughs> and i was like one of the weird reactions i had to the wonder woman news was like no i want my popcorn out of like a gold yep. wonder woman helmet and i deserve that and so figure that out but yeah it's a hugely expensive ordeal when you're talking about all those things and i think that theaters were kind of forced to do those things to survive i think that right. you know the more people were streaming and not even just streaming like when there was you know earlier piracy and then um, a lot of the streaming and how that affects things and still piracy of theatrical releases um you know your theaters are doing these large spectacles they had to do a 3d movie and they had to do um you know, the 40 S seats or whatever they're called. And they had to do all those things to make movies a bigger spectacle. And obviously that changed so much uh, from the like, hey, let's go see a movie thing. Um, but I, you know, I do lament that. I do as much as like that kind of killed the go to the theater and see whatever. Now I'm kind of like, oh, I'm lamenting the loss of that. But I do also love the going to the movies alone. Like I was saying, where I live, I'm able to get to a lot of small theaters. Um, I am a member of TIFF, uh, so TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival uh, actually runs year round. Um, like it's not a festival year round, but they have programming like year round. special screenings and programs, yeah. Yeah, and um, they always are playing bizarre things and part of my membership, like I pay for one of the larger memberships, but you get really cheap, like $2 tickets to most of the movies if you're a member. So it's only valuable if you actually go to all those movies, otherwise, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes on New Year's Eve, like literally New Year's Eve 2019 uh, to 2020, I, they had during the day, they played Goodfellas and I just like walked over, got my popcorn and my Goodfellas themed cocktail and sat and watched Goodfellas, a movie I've seen 600 times in the theaters. I'm like, that's amazing. And I hope, yeah. you know, those are the types of things like, yes, the magic of the opening weekend is so humongous, but I also, the magic of the small theater and just throwing like, you know, $3 at tiff and then of course i end up buying you know popcorn or cocktail but just like sitting there or even just like sometimes i'll go during the day i'll pick up a latte and go and sit there and watch like when they we were talking about it recently the um bong joon ho they did a huge program of his stuff for a while so his movies were playing all the time for a few weeks and i was like yeah i do want to go watch host again today and i'm gonna get a coffee and just go do that i'm gonna be sitting on my couch watching a movie i'm gonna go to the theater and do it and like yeah i mean i don't know I, it's important stuff. And that to me is the best part about movies by yourself is going and doing things like that. Yeah. I also like seeing large releases by myself every so often, but there's nothing just like popping over to a theater. And instead of just sitting on your couch, playing with your phone, half watching a movie that you've seen a hundred times, it's so nice to just watch on a big screen, like the smell of popcorn yep. and like in the dark. It's just I, I, I'm one of the people, because before I became a therapist and got into like health and human services, what I did 
for 20 years, my career was like working in home theater first, like as like a salesperson for like boutique chains and then like working as like a distributor, uh, working with small business owners, where if you didn't want to order things on Amazon or go to a Best Buy or a chain store, you would call one of my clients and I would help my clients design and put together systems and program them like that was my gig. So um, I've been able to like acquire a lot of gear over the years. But then when I was in grad school, I took a corner of my basement that's unfinished and like repainted the wall. So it looks like real brick, just using like a different paints and sponges. And I'll, I'll probably post some of these on our Facebook group. Cause I'm pretty proud of it. I put down this like yoga mat that looks like hardwood floor, hung up blackout curtains. Um, cool. And I think I put together like a $10,000 system for less than a grand just wow. by like using like Facebook marketplace and refurb gear. Cause I know what stuff should cost. And I know right. like, that's a really good deal. So I have like like a, what works. Yeah. I've got a hundred inch projection screen in my basement. So to me, it's kind of like, I have a massive screen and it looks like film. So the only thing that I worry about is when movies are, Oh, it's on HBO max. I can just watch it whenever. Then it becomes like not special. So like, I never get to it. Like, I wonder like when Kong versus Godzilla versus Kong comes out, um, That's something I should like want to jump on right away, but it becomes like the Irishman is a great example. If the Irishman yes. is in theaters, I would have gone and seen it opening weekend. Yeah. But I'm like, Oh, it's on Netflix. I'll get to it eventually. Um, which is really stupid. Like, and then I don't know how many times I've like picked up the remote and started scrolling through one of like 400 different services. Ooh, so exhausting. And never watch. And 90 minutes later, like, oh, I haven't watched anything. And now I'm tired and going to bed. Yep. The person who, and they kind of have our cable providers trying it, but it's not super great. And there's a few others. I think Apple TV kind of tries mm-hmm. it, but I don't have Apple TV. But the person who creates uh, some sort of core app or whatever, some interface that like sits on top of everything so that when you go to like horror, it shows you all the horror movies you have access yep. to with all of your services. And like, you can make one playlist and like that is gonna be that's what we got huge it's so frustrating flipping through like i'm like oh i'm in the mood for a slasher and i have to go through like 10 different things to pick a it's a whole nightmare yeah it's exhausting it's definitely (laughs) there's and sometimes i'm like i will only watch something if it's in my list already right but that lasts for like two days and then i'm like scrolling again so yeah i scroll because if i add something this is a thing that i consciously know but i'm never gonna stop doing it if I add something to my watch list, if I'm like scrolling for a movie and I'm like, oh, I don't feel like that now, but I'm going to add it to my watch list. It just tells me that I don't actually want to watch it. And it's just right. going to sit on my watch list for six months, but I will never yeah. learn my lesson. My watch list yeah. just get bigger and bigger. And then when I look at my watch, I'm like, I don't watch any of this. Yep. <laughs> I'll just look for a different streaming service. Maybe their yeah. stuff is better. Yeah. Like I don't want this. A mythical movie that's out there that I like really can't wait to see, but didn't know that it was on such yeah. and such a service. So. Yeah. And then it's like, wow, but it's true. And I think that like studios are really um, trying to fight this kind of thing. Like we saw watch parties on Twitter becoming really popular in mm-hmm. lockdown and like freaky just happened this weekend. Um, and I did that watch party last night. Um, I guess it'll be a week or 
well, no, I don't know what was this, a couple of days ago by the time you guys mm-hmm. hear this. And I did the freaky wash party and it's fun, but I've seen freaky before. And I will say that like, as much as the watch party is such a good idea to get people to watch the movie opening weekend, it's really not conducive to movie watching. Like no. I'd seen it before and I was like, I missed so much. It's so overwhelming and looking at the hashtag and making sure to tweet on time. And I don't think that that's the long-term no. solution to the whole opening weekend I think thing. It's, like when people <sighs> tweet spoilers, like, oh my God, the movie is a day old and they're live watching it. Like that is, yeah. that's it's, the equivalent of the jackass in a theater Right, playing on their phone. I always say, like, I'm a very big fan of muting, and I think everyone should be better at muting. If you haven't seen, like, there are times um, I like to save movies because I really miss my like Sunday afternoon in the rain watches, Mm -hmm. and I lost that when I started to write about movies a lot more because I would see everything opening weekend because I had to, right, or before. Um, And I feel like whenever it was like a Sunday and I had a cozy day to watch something, it was gone because I needed to either A, watch it for work, which again, not a complaint. It's very awesome. Um, I needed to A, watch it for work or B, watched it because I wanted to participate in the Twitter discourse. So every so often I'll just like pick an arbitrary movie that I'm just like, I'm skipping the conversation on this one. And I'm going to save it for, you know, two months from now so I can watch it on a Sunday in the rain. And I had to mute, I mute heavily like new <laughs> words if there's a movie that you haven't seen like and you're um you know and you're gonna watch it later and you want to save it just set up some mutes mute every word that sounds like that movie and then because i mean I, I don't know i guess maybe that's not so uh important if you're not someone who uses twitter or and that's not where you get your information from but i get most of my movie stuff from twitter and i was mm-hmm. just like no i'm not gonna watch this now you know i'm tweeting everything there is about ari aster because i don't want to watch midsummer until later and that's what's gonna happen um and so even like when i was doing this tweet um i said like right off the top my first tweet and that's the i a lot of the intention of the hashtag that people don't get i think because it's not very obvious because obviously pr is not going to encourage you to mute it but mute the hashtag if everyone's tweeting using a specific hashtag mute that hashtag it's so easy um, and then you won't see anybody's annoying live tweets all over your feed because like my first tweet in my thread last night was like, make sure to mute this hashtag if you're not watching, because yeah. if not, your whole feed is going to be all your friends talking about a movie that you're not watching right now. It's going to be very annoying. So just is, mute the tag. Is Freaky available? Is it like a full price movie right yeah. now? You have to, okay. So I believe so. I think it's like a $20 rental kind of thing. All right. Can you buy it for 25? I think so. I might just do that. I mean, for the extra yeah. five bucks, I'm sure I'll watch it twice, yeah. especially if I can get it in 4K. So most right. of the time, like if there's a movie like I when so I saw Birds of Prey in theaters mm-hmm. when it, I was it was like the second last movie I saw in theaters before lockdown. So I did see the early screening of it. And then um, I also like when it was like rent or buy, I wanted to watch it again in the beginning of lockdown because I loved it so much. And so I yeah. did, it was like rent for 20 bucks, buy for 25. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to buy it. But like, I still want the Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah. I think I bought like, like the I'm last watch- I did. We <laughs> yeah. bought Bill and Ted's face the music. So it was only five uh, bucks more. And I yeah. got to be yeah. honest. I'm like, it was okay. Oh, I've been saving that. Cause I mm-hmm. know it's one of those ones I have to be in the mood for. Mm-hmm. And then I also like, this is why I try to mute in advance. Um, because the fact that it like, didn't get so much like, Oh my God, I love it from people that I trust. I was mm-hmm. kind of like, Oh, I might not watch yeah, this. Then. It was okay. Yeah. I'll watch it again. I think I'll watch it again. Um, at some point it was worth a couple extra bucks for it, but the yeah. last half hour is pretty terrific. I think the first okay. half hour is, you know, it's, it's like fine. 
I know I do I do need to I love Bill and Ted and I think that Mm -hmm. I just like wasn't ready for more because I find and this is personal this is not me saying something about the quality um most reboots of my favorite things I find so underwhelming and then I just like end up kind of feeling a bit sour a lot of times like the magic is that time and place and that specific moment in a performer's career and a lot of different things coming together and it's really hard to replicate that years and years later it's really you're and I feel like it also it feels like they're trying to replicate it like Mm -hmm. you can feel I didn't watch it and so I'm commenting based on nothing um I'm one of Keanu Reeves's biggest fans I love Keanu I love Bill and Ted and when I'm watching those clips I can feel Keanu trying to recapture Bill and Ted Keanu as opposed to him being who he is now yeah Yeah. so i'm like i don't know we'll see what happens we'll see but i am intrigued um it is one that i will rent eventually or potentially i think it might be one that i wait for a streaming service hey listeners allow me to cut into the show for a moment here just to once again pitch our patreon page which gives our listeners exclusive access to our bonus content What does your Patreon patronage go towards? Well, number one, it allows us to buy a lot of the Blu-rays and movies that we need in order to actually do the show. Um, It means that I am able to buy a few things a little bit quicker so I can plan ahead and we can start putting together our episodes in the coming months ahead. It also allows us access to better editing equipment, better microphones, uh, and also the research materials, whether they're books or documentaries or really anything else you can think of. Um, And also, I mean, not going to lie, it's a way that we feel like what we're doing here actually matters. Now, what do you get? I mean, that's really what it's all about. Look, we aren't one of the Patreons that are going to say, just give us your money and you get nothing in return but our thanks, because we feel that our base show is always going to be free, and we appreciate everyone that listens to us, everyone that's reviewed our show, everyone that has spread the word and really help us grow. We feel that if you feel strongly enough that we're worth your time and worth your ears every week, that you donate to us, then you deserve a reward. So all Patreons have access to our exclusive monthly Patreon episodes where we tackle movies we wouldn't normally do. Uh, This past November, we covered um, The House on Haunted Hill with BJ Coangelo. We have done movies like It Follows, 976 Evil, and The Color Out of Space. This month for December, it's Christmas month. It's a holiday month, so we're going to do a holiday-themed movie, and we have um, settled on Mike Doherty's Krampus. So if you're interested in hearing that episode, along with all of our others, go to patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum. Tiers start as low as 2 bucks, all the way up to 10 bucks right now. Uh, You get access, depending on the tier, to our show notes. We have some swag we're going to be doing next year, some stickers and pins. We also have a Slack channel that we make exclusive to all our Patreons where we can discuss, you know, different things going on in the horror world. It's a really fun, kind of friendly place for everybody. Um, I will say that in the coming year, I definitely want to relook at what we can offer our patrons. It will definitely be a bonus episode in the Slack, but I think we can do more for everybody uh, to make it a really fun community and a really great place for you to get some fantastic analysis of the horror genre. So again, before we go back to our episode, just go to patreon.com, pod and the pendulum, and sign up today to support our show.
But yeah. anyway, <laughs> let's dive into <laughs> let's dive into yeah. Urban Legends Bloody Mary with talking a little bit about maybe the origins of the myth of Bloody Mary. I did a little bit yeah. of research on this heading in because to be fair, like the myth of Bloody Mary and the historical figure there, it's more it's a lot more fun than the movie. So, yeah, the movie. Yeah, I'll let you. Uh, so fill there us is in here. there is Mary Tudor, who was the daughter of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, who was born uh, in February of 1516. She oh, okay. is the first woman to actually gain the monarchy of England outright, not through marriage, and basically she did it alongside uh, her sister Queen Elizabeth, the future Queen Elizabeth by basically waging civil war throughout the countryside of England. Uh, after her father, Henry VIII's passing, her brother, uh, Edward, uh, was given the throne, and she felt it should be hers because she was, I think, uh, born first, but, you know, sexism and the monarchy and all that fun mm -hmm. stuff. She said, fuck this noise. I am not just going to be like a lady of the court. Um, we're going literally medieval since this is medieval times. And she and her gang of rebels waged this really unconventional and doomed to fail, except it didn't uh, guerrilla war against her brother. And uh, in 1553, she won the throne outright. Um, she got the name Bloody Mary um, because during her five-year reign, which she died in 1558 of uterine cancer, she earned this nickname because she had at least 280 Protestants burned at the stake. Whoa. Her primary focus as queen was restoring Catholicism um, as the primary it's really the not even primary, the sole religion of England after her father, Henry, had split with the Vatican when the Pope wouldn't grant him a divorce so he could marry Anne Boleyn. Um, what? Yeah. I had no idea. That, that is, is this going to be on the, like a season of The Crown? Holy cow. Uh, possibly. This is how the <laughs> Church of England came to be. And back then, the, the crime of heresy was basically like everybody that was burned at the stake was burned as a heretic. And because the church and the Vatican were so tightly entwined with one another, to be deemed a heretic was basically to be deemed uh, guilty of treason. And there was no right. greater crime than that, hence the burning up of stake. Now, she has been called like one of the most bloodthirsty and fierce rulers of all Britain's history. The reality is this is sexism at play. Because wow. he, even though... Mary burned more persons in five years than her father did in 38 years, oh, about 280 versus 82. Henry had about 57,000 to 72,000 um, of his subjects executed by the state during his reign. That would include oh, eight of his wives, by the way, um, who he found it easier to just murder and remarry when they wouldn't give birth to a, a male heir. Um, that I knew. Yes. That's bizarre, so, but that I knew. So, and there are other bloodthirsty rulers throughout Great Britain's history, yet Mary, because she's a woman, um, because of the way she earned the crown, which again, not unusual to see a monarchy toppled back then or to see regimes toppled today, she was given this, this name um, of Bloody Mary. Now, that's not where the myth of Bloody Mary comes from in terms of how we know it today you know the urban legend behind bloody mary is basically this you'll shut off the lights 
you'll hold a, cand uh, a candle and in a very dark room, you'll look in the mirror and say the name Bloody Mary. And it varies. Like I put down five times in my notes. I've read three in some places. Mm -hmm. One article I read said 13 times, which that seems excessive. Um, and you'll say Bloody Mary, or you'll say some variation like Bloody Mary, I killed your child. Um, and then she'll appear before you in the mirror. Other variations of it had a person walking backwards while holding a mirror in front of them. And if you said her name five times, Mary would show you the person that you're going to marry one day reflected back at you, unless they showed you like either the bloody skull or the grim reaper, which meant that you will die before you were married. Um, oh no. now, you actually have a history with this, uh, something you said, right? So well, I've never played this game. So Lindsay, tell me about your time playing Bloody Mary as a child in between watching movies. Yeah, I mean, I knew it. It's funny that like in the in the movie, they're, I guess, high school aged, um, which I feel like Bloody Mary definitely was something I knew long before that. Um, so when I was in kindergarten, there was this guy named Matthew. Mm -hmm. And uh, Matthew definitely like watched stuff with his parents that other people weren't allowed to watch. Like he knew that he knew more stuff than we did. We were in kindergarten. So think about how I don't remember how old were you five? Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Five <laughs> yeah. years old. You're like five years old. And I feel like we were having these, you know, real conversations, but we probably like could barely speak yet. But um, so yeah, so he's, we we're five ish. And Matthew was the kid who like, he watched um, unsolved murders with his parents and he would tell mm -hmm. me or not unsolved murders. Um, what's that one that was recently unsolved rebooted? Mysteries. Unsolved mysteries. Thank you. And he would tell me, and I was like, oh my God, there are ghosts, they're real. And he would always tell us about episodes of Unsolved Mysteries and, and convince us that things were real. And he's the one who told me about Bloody Mary. And I remember thinking like, well, I'm absolutely not doing that. I'm not crazy. But Matthew would always like try to get us. We had uh, in the kindergarten classroom, there was a bathroom, which the rest of the school obviously didn't have. But there was one in the kindergarten classroom and he would always like try to get us to climb in there and play Bloody Mary. And I was like, absolutely not, I'm five. Uh, and then later when I was, I guess, was grade seven ish did like he still... ever before you go on did he ever get any of the kids to play that with him no i was definitely like the only brave one that would have considered it and mm -hmm. i was like that's that's a hard hard no for me matthew um but i was like matthew. more yeah i was more interested in him when he would talk about unsolved mysteries i'd be like yes tell me more um but i'm sure most most of the kids were like see you later freak um i was like yes <laughs> tell me more of this scary story uh which again is bizarre that i didn't realize i was a horror fan until i was much older but um yeah, and then I remember like, I guess probably grade seven-ish, uh, my friends kind of got excited about it and, and we'd play and I remember just being so scared and I was never convinced that when it didn't work immediately that it wasn't going to work. So like, it, you know, we try to do it in the girls' bathroom at school and turn off all the lights or we do it at these sleepover parties. And, uh, you know, you'd like hold the girl's bathroom door closed because you don't want anyone else to come in and turn off all the lights, which you had to use a paper clip to do because they had a special key that only the custodian could use. Look at that. And, oh my goodness. That is some MacGyver shit right oh there. Oh yeah. And so we'd have to like find ways to turn the lights off and play in the mirror. And I remember thinking just because she didn't get us now doesn't mean that we haven't like brought her into this world. And I was just scared of her showing up at any time. And I thought she was going to like show up in the mirror and mirror stuff was really trendy around that age. Like it was, you know, yeah, I'd seen Poltergeist three for the first time. And then there was, I think it was just called mirrors that movie with uh, Kiefer Sutherland. Mm -hmm. um, so mirror stuff was really scary. I just remember thinking like anytime I looked in the mirror, that bloody Murray was going to show up because we awakened her by doing it in the school bathroom. 
And you never, did you ever see anything or did your friends ever claim to see anything? Uh, friends claimed to see stuff, but none of us were ever like that scared. I remember mm-hmm. none of us were ever like, oh, it worked, but we were still scared to like retry it. We were like, let's not push our luck here. Okay. But uh, there were other things mm-hmm. that we very much were more afraid of than Bloody Mary. What were the other things you were more afraid of? We'd like do like, oh gosh, we would do seances and like we were very convinced. I still remain convinced that we had awoken things. As where Bloody Mary, we were able to shake off. We were still scared of it. Like it was still like, oh, let's not do this Bloody Mary thing again because it might work. Mm -hmm. But it kind of became almost like a challenge. Like you would put someone in the bathroom, turn off all the lights and make them do it. And it was almost like if you were scared, it would take you a really long time to say Bloody Mary. But if you like were a badass, you would just say Bloody Mary five times and then walk out of the bathroom, like see nothing happen. And you were like so cool and brave, Mm -hmm. you know? It was one of those things like someone walking and be like, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. See, nothing happened. I'm super brave. Now let me out of this bathroom, please. Yeah, no, let me out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So the origins of this are traced back to possibly the 1970s. Um, Some sociologists say that it's an allegory for like uh, burgeoning womanhood and puberty with the Mm -hmm. idea being, being like, oh, you know, if you're supposed to see who you're supposed to marry in the mirror, then you're starting to gain an interest in um, your own sexuality at that point in couplehood. And also the idea of like um, Bloody Mary being a stand in for menstrual blood and this, you know, like you said, like being done by a lot, most often like young girls that were in like, you know, late elementary or middle school or even like junior high school doing this. Yeah. Um, and it was like a mirror, which is in, I mean, there are mirrors everywhere. You always did it in a mirror in the bathroom. So yeah. there's definitely something to be said about talking about blood in a bathroom as a preteen. Yeah. And then there's also the notion that possibly Bloody Mary is tied back to Mary Worth, uh, who was one of the women executed uh, during the Salem witch trials of 1692, that it's possibly her that is like coming out to uh, kind of haunt you. And she allegedly appears in a number of different ways. Like usually it's a really bloody face with like rotted out teeth and Mm -hmm. sometimes a screaming skull, sometimes a beautiful woman, but you know, you never know quite how she's going to appear. So Mm -hmm. what do we actually see when we think we see someone besides ourselves in the mirror? Um, did a little bit of reading on this, and there's an article that I'll link in our notes for folks that want to read a bit more in depth about it. But this is from the site Mental Floss, um, Bloody Mary, and why we think we see things in mirror mirrors. Uh, in 2010, psychologist Giovanni Caputo, which is such a fun name to say, uh, explains that like staring at your own reflection in a dimly lit room results in the perception of like a strange face or something called the Troxler effect. It's caused by dim lighting providing these discrepancies that we perceive in our own face. Our brains start to adapt to the stimuli that's not changing. So in this case, in this case, what your brain originally sees is that kind of less than clear reflection of your own in the mirror. What happens over time is it gets bored with just staring at the same thing in the dark the neurons start canceling out all of this information it already knows in the head. So you start getting these distortions or weird images, or at least the perception of them. Um, Our own cognitive thought patterns then go into overdrive and it tells yourself that we're seeing something else in the mirror. And because we're playing this game, we're going to see a ghostly apparition. That's what your brain cognitively tells you what you're seeing at that moment. Um, it's actually a survival mechanism. Um, 
if our brains were not able to kind of like drown out all of the little stimuli around us, like for example, behind me right now, there is a little air freshener um, that goes right over the rabbit's litter box. Mm -hmm. And if I couldn't drown that out, I wouldn't be able, or if I was always hyper-focused on that because it's on, I wouldn't be able to focus on important things around me. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what your brain does in a way to kind of protect you. And what's kind of neat, if you go and read this article, it gives you a demonstration of it. They put like this square box in the middle of the screen with this kind of like prosaic pattern of like pink and light gray and light and kind of like very, very light blue splotches. And it tells you to stare at it for about eight to 10 seconds. And what happens after about eight to 10 seconds is the pink and the blue start to dissolve and you start to see more and more gray in the picture that is actually there. Like your brain starts to see it in a different way. So it's really interesting to kind of see that phenomenon Whoa, kind of play out. So yeah, so if you think you've seen Bloody Mary in the mirror, it could be a haunting. You could have invoked a demon or it could be just your brain trying to prevent you from, you know, getting overloaded right there. Yo, Patreon episode is going to be me doing Bloody Mary in the mirror. Excellent. And what we see, we should definitely do that. Um, (laughs) We can definitely do a video recording of that. And I would probably dress my kid up to come scare us at that point. (laughs) Yeah, Um, no. All right. So what are your initial thoughts? Let's first talk about who directed this movie. So I think so quickly, I feel like I know we don't do uh, the synopsis necessarily, but what this movie does first off is it, it gives us a new version of the Bloody Mary myth. It creates a new Bloody Mary. Um, But then it also talks about it like it's always existed. So it's the same myth that we have about, you know, staring in a mirror, saying her name, Um, but it gives us a little bit of a backstory. And then kind of, you know, we meet a bunch of teens that are living with this, potentially having unleashed this Bloody Mary Um, is pretty much the core concept of the movie. Um, Yeah, so it's directed by Mary Lampert, which I, which for those who don't know, Mary Lampert is the most famous for directing Pet Cemetery, uh, one and two. which are unbelievable and I love them very much. And she also made this movie, which I did not know going into it. I pushed play on this movie, uh, not knowing that it was directed by Mary Lampert. And to when I later checked, I was like, are you sure? Are there two Mary Lamperts? <laughs> <laughs> I did not believe that the same woman behind Pet Cemetery um, made Urban Legends Bloody Mary. Yeah, it was surprising because this mm-hmm. movie feels really inert. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, well said. I remembered like about 40 minutes into the movie thinking like, well, at least it's probably about to wrap up at this point. And then checking and then, oh my God, there is an hour left of this movie right now. And then about 20 minutes after that, I promptly fell asleep on my sofa. And then yeah. like did the thing where you wake up and aren't sure where you are and the credits are playing and you're like, I don't know where I am or what happened right now, but I sure, you know, it's, it's so weird to me. And fun fact, like I actually am one of those weirdos that prefers Pet Cemetery 2 to Pet Cemetery 1. I like Um, Pet Cemetery 2 a lot. I think, yeah, I, yep. And I I know it's like famous for like Stephen King demanding that his name was taken off it because A, it really Mm -hmm. wasn't, 
based on any of his works at that point, aside from the Pet Cemetery conceit. But it was like one of those movies that got like absolutely savaged when it was released. Yeah. And I think I watched it not, I kind of knowing that it was that. And then I'm like, why do people not like this movie? Like, it's so much fun. It's so yeah. batshit crazy. And you can see like where her work as a, a music video director really benefited her. Mm-hmm. Um and I like Pet Cemetery. I certainly think it's better than the remake from 2018. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's like so slavishly devoted to the source material from Stephen King that it, you know, it has, especially with um, Judd. Um, I'm trying to think who played his guy who played Herman Munster. And now why can't I think of his name? I can't remember his name either, but, but I. Yeah, he's like so iconic in that role that I mean, it takes a lot. It takes a lot to forget about John Lithgow. But this guy puts I think is is the iconic Judd. Um, But I love Pet Cemetery too, because it's just it gives no fucks whatsoever. It just does its own thing uh, in a really fun. And it's kind of like Rob Zombie's Halloween, too, where it's like, okay, we made the movie that we're supposed to make. And now we're going to make like the movie that we want to make at this point. And I think there's something really great about that. Yeah. So I was just, so Judd is, um, he's played by Fred Gwynn. Yes. Fred Gwynn. And I think about him all the time. So <laughs> my cousin Vinny is another one of my favorite movies. And of mm-hmm. course he's Herman Munster. And so every time I see him, he's so great as Judd that he stands out as Judd enough that that's an iconic character, but I still always picture him in the conversation with, uh, with Joe Pesci and my cousin Vinny with the two Utes. And he's like, the two, what? Um, I think about that Southern accent, all that like really hammy Southern accent all the time. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I think Pet Cemetery is just super fun. I like Pet Cemetery too is super fun because it just like goes off. It's just like, yeah, I'm making this movie. This is what I want to do. I love it. And I can't believe that that same let's go visionary uh actually made bloody mary uh, urban legends bloody mary i'm surprised by it i told you earlier i went through my notes and the first page of my notes or three quarters of a page is just kind of like reacting very typically like ugh, whomever directed this just has no idea how women actually speak right <laughs> and i mean it was written by two men but um yeah i kept thinking like oh there's just no way like of course these three young girls who are supposed to be 15 16 are having an underwear pillow fight that's shot in slow-mo with giggles and close-ups of their crotches like of course right uh, and it's very surprising to me to hear that that was a uh, and then the stepdad story. walks in and he's like my first act of mayor will be to declare a curfew for teenage girls to protect yeah. them you know like oh for god's sake and then the mom is like to protect their virginity and it's like oh it's too late for that and it's like oh stepdad that's so gross it was like so gross my skin was crawling it was like five minutes into this movie and i was like i can't watch this my skin is crawling as this guy's making quick jokes about protecting the virginity of a stepdaughter but it's too late but he's still gonna lock her up i was like right. Ugh. and then yeah. in the background you just hear like and it's just like it's this weird pillow fight it, it, oh. Oh, that happens like three times and yeah. then not only that oh gosh i knew this was gonna be a rant but not only that um the kate mara the main character played by kate mara uh she's wearing you know <laughs> she, she's wearing a zip up and mm-hmm. you know because she's covered up because she's the homely one 
And uh, they make a quip right out the gate, uh, which is actually the inciting action of the movie, which I think is even is the most bizarre. The inciting action is that um, she called out the men in a newspaper. And so she called out the football team in a newspaper, posted a photo of them dressed as women, which of course was considered a huge, um, you know, mean thing for her to do. It was used and her, without their permission. Oh, and her friends are like, you know, you. it's because you, you know, I don't remember exactly what they say, but like it says you poke the bear, like you shouldn't have done that. Right. shouldn't have done you know god oh they said something that she's speaking out you need to stop speaking out and that's ruining our social lives we'll never get dates to the dance because right. we keep I'll... speaking out against the men and it's like very quickly the movie's telling us that the girl right. who uh you know is maybe political or whatever you want to call her who speaks out she's got a voice um that automatically means that she hates dudes they're never going to get da- um, dates to the dance because of it and that's a bad thing and uh, she wears pants and long hoodies when her friends are cute and sexy so the (laughs) movie i hate this movie (laughs) so the movie starts out like it flashes back to like and i think it's supposed to take place in massachusetts only because they have that song like dirty water um Mm. playing which is played after like every red Sox victory and it's distinctly like massachusetts and boston so like there's no other reason you would play that song unless you were setting it in massachusetts like it's definitely and it's you know i hate to say that yeah no that makes sense it's like playing shipping off to boston you just wouldn't do it in a movie in new york yeah you you wouldn't do that and nor should you ever play shipping up to boston for any reason but (laughs) you definitely wouldn't do it say in a movie set in like saskatchewan you know what i mean or or shiboga it just Mm -hmm. wouldn't work at that point um we just watched home alone for our first christmas movie of the season and i gotta say like that movie never fails to delight me. Oh, it's I mean, just the John Candy's little like cameo in that, like, God damn, he's, he was just so brilliant and just yeah, so lovely. It's the warmest movie ever. It, it really is, except that Kevin, we need to talk about Kevin, well, Kevin McAllister. There are lots of jokes made about the jigsaw. But... What a little sociopath that kid, <laughs> yeah. that kid is just some like, it, when, he, when, you're, when the parents come home and they're happy that he's safe and not dead, you know, um, but then when they learn what their son was capable of mm-hmm. in terms of like, he could have at any point escaped and gotten the police and the wet bandits would have been locked up. He yeah. just likes to hurt people, especially in Home Alone too. It's so sadistic, so fucking sadistic. There's an episode, I don't know if you watch Honest Trailers, uh, the Screen Junkies Honest Trailers. I've seen mix- some of them and they're very good, yeah. Yeah, I'm like some are better than others for sure, but the Home Alone one makes me laugh every time. But like they start off with today. like, oh gosh, it's very cute. And they start off like talking about Home Alone, whatever, and Kevin and they transition into like as you watch him show every sign of being a sociopath oh <laughs> then it's like God, like yeah. manipulation and then it's mm-hmm. him being like i'm sorry mom <laughs> like yeah. all of that and it like lists them off while he does it and it's so funny and it's like but he's just so gosh darn cute he is like young macaulay calkin what a cutie, <laughs> what a um, cutie. so anyway this is a long way to say that we just don't have a ton to talk about with this movie so the movie starts in like 1969. It's the homecoming dance and like all the football players are there with their dates. Mary is there. Yeah, what's with like the, the 69 home- thing, by the way? Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. There's well, no reason to set it in 1969, except that, you know, 
because they've got so the 69 thing so i initially i was like is this the 50s no it's the 70s i guess it's mm-hmm. the 60s i couldn't really figure it out because their costumes are not it um, doesn't seem like consistent. 1969 does it it does feel like the feels 1950s like the 50s. it feels like yeah. they're at like a 40s 50s sock hop like it's yeah. very um, all the boys have like pretty short hair you know like keeping it high and tight they're all in their letterman's jacket like yeah. no sign of a dirty hippie everywhere except uh, yeah it was very bizarre but then i was like okay 1969 and then there i guess it might have been the year but like their jackets also have 69 on them mm-hmm. which i guess was a thing to the year but i was like is this some other gross immature gag but okay i think it's a gag by the writers and yeah. it just kind of slipped in at that point because again yeah. there's no need to have it like take place in that year other than the number 69 yeah, bizarre. so but the anyway, boys well, the boys like drug the girls at the dance, except for Mary, who doesn't drink or drink. And she goes off and she seems like she's pretty willing to go with her date. Like she doesn't mm-hmm. seem like she's ever, she's like, yeah, like you want to go somewhere more private? Fuck yeah, let's go. I'm down to party, you yeah. know? And she sees her friends like completely out of it and drugged and she runs off. She's chased by the lead jock and uh, he inadvertently kills her uh, and then stuffs her body in a trunk. Um in the school and like in a like old storage closet in the school and that's where she is and then we cut you know to this these three girls and one of them seems to be obsessed with the other friends like her mom possibly being like an alcoholic and she makes a lot of jokes about her mom being like a drunk which seems like alcoholism is a pretty serious thing my friends it's definitely not something to joke about and it was pretty fucked up yeah, it's very bizarre. It, the whole tone right at the gate is weird. I mean, mm-hmm. immediately I was uncomfortable that the, of course, they had to rewrite an existing legend um, to be about drugging women and murdering them, which like I understand they had to create in a lot of ways. Okay, you know, you wanted to create a modern um you know, story of a woman scorned and kind of the modern misogyny, you know, the movie came out in 2005. Obviously I'm not going to hold it to a 2020 standard mm-hmm. of an inciting action. Um, but it was right out the gate that's the bit and I was like okay movie let's do this and then uh immediately transitions to like very weird close-ups of these girls making very uncomfortable statements about Mm -hmm. drunk moms it's bizarre and then like when the brother walks in like one of them she's like kind of lying on her belly with her elbows propped up so obviously Mm -hmm. her chest is kind of like very prominent at that point and the the brother of Kate Mara is like oh hey nice and he's like just staring daggers right at her boobs at that right. point. And, and then it's just... she makes a joke about her own, and I assume they were step siblings. I couldn't really figure it out, but she makes a joke about him masturbating to them yes. from down the hall, which, like, so, what? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. That's right. So, yeah. And again, just... I can't tell if this is like an intentional, um, you know, quip about how it's a, it's a, um, a legend that often centers around puberty. Um, and it's like, you know, a modern telling of a woman scorned, maybe more modern being 1969. And now we're talking about these are young kids going through puberty. We're mm-hmm. noticing boobs and masturbating um, and things like that. But then at the same time, I was like, no, it just makes me feel gross. I don't know that I want to give it that benefit of the doubt. But that's kind of where my head yeah. kind of went back and forth between. And the twin brother in this movie is such a dick. Like, I remember, like, the next time you see him is the next morning. He comes into the kitchen and he immediately, like, knocks something over. 
and doesn't make any attempt to pick it up, which is to me is a huge pet peeve. He just has this look like, that's what I do. Like I come uh-huh. in and knock shit over, you know, and it's a me like, hey, mom, give me a hundred dollars. Like, right. so kid fucking sucks. Yeah, but before that, the, yeah. the three girls play Bloody Mary, but they do it lying on their backs on a sea of pillows. There's no mirror and the lights are on. So yeah. they just say Bloody Mary three times. Like, if that's all it takes to get Bloody Mary to show up, like, what happens if they went to brunch? Yeah. Right? <laughs> no. Like, because... I, well, we're toast. We've said it 50 times today. I know. So like, we're in big trouble. We're, we're totally screwed. Mm-hmm. Um, but the next day when, when the brother walks in to wake the girls up, like, they're gone. And no yeah. one can find them. Like, and that kind of comes out of left field, right? Like, it's just as I'm not weird in thinking that, like, that's not a, a thing that I saw coming in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, that's not what I expected to happen. I still kind of don't know where it fits into the story. Mm-hmm. And it could be because they did zone out a lot in the back yeah. half and really have to spend time focusing. So this might have been addressed. Um, it was an odd turn right because later you find out their suspicion that um they'd been drugged by the football players mm-hmm. as some sort of revenge and that's and they're kind of lying about it but then the movie does really suggest that bloody mary did it so yeah I it's very odd and i don't know anything football players because they talk about it and they're like there's that head jock with like the chin strap beard mm-hmm. who's like, it was just a stupid prank. My friends don't deserve to die for it. And it's like, right. you drugged three young women, dragged them yeah. from their home in the middle of the night, locked them in an abandoned basement miles from the city, miles from their homes in the mm-hmm. middle of winter, by the way, when they're wearing nothing but pajamas mm-hmm. and then abandoned them to their own devices in this locked up basement somewhere in the middle of who knows where, like that is like so far removed from your run of the mill. Let's light a bag of poop on fire and leave it on their doorstep. Frank, like right. that is like, that's some like, mean shit. That's some psycho shit. Right. And, and it felt like it mm-hmm. turned the Bloody Mary story in this movie to a more direct revenge. She's yeah. like getting revenge on these new jocks because they did the same thing to these girls as mm-hmm. what happened to her. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I needed that at all because I, I keep jumping ahead with your um, breakdown here, but the movie feels very, very uh, borrowed from Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm-hmm. And in Nightmare on Elm Street, and we find out that Freddie's going after the kids because of the parents. That's all I needed to know. Um, and later it's kind of revealed that this might be revenge on the the children of the football initial football players. Yep. That's all I needed to know. I didn't yeah. I didn't need that weird opener. And I think I couldn't tell. And I'm curious your feelings. When you watch this movie, did you know it was gonna be supernatural versus the original slasher tone of the first two? I think I did only because like I had done like a little reading. Mm you know, ahead of time. So you're right. Like that's one of the big differences here is like the first two urban legends are whodunit slasher movies. And both of them are really fun ones at that. And this one is a decided like supernatural tone to it. Like Bloody Mary is enacting her revenge, like you said, on the children. And yeah, there's no need for like the three women in this movie to get kidnapped by a bunch of burgeoning sociopaths. The only reason I think that's done is because it just continues this trend of writers in the early 2000s being like, well, 
we can't have the victims of horror movies be likable. Like they actually, they have to be like complete fucking dirt bags. Otherwise, why would you watch it? You don't want to watch a bunch of good kids get murdered. So. Yeah, that is a good point. I couldn't tell. That's actually, yeah, I didn't think Mm -hmm. of that. I think that's a good point. I couldn't tell if it was the movie. Um, trying to convince us that maybe this wasn't supernatural. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it becomes supernatural pretty fast. But the first two, these urban legends happen and it turns out it was just a slasher killer both times. Yeah. Uh, which you know right away. That's not a spoiler. You know it's a slasher killer the whole time. Um, but it kind of co- it comes from this legend. So I couldn't tell if it was like the movie almost dancing with us to be like, maybe this is just a person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That was kind of the thing I couldn't read. There was um, never a moment where I thought like, oh, I wonder who's behind it. Like, it's pretty implicit or explicit mm-hmm. um, that it's like some sort of supernatural force taking these right. out. But so I couldn't tell if like that bit was in there to kind of maybe troll us just enough before it gave us that very obvious mm-hmm. Freddy Krueger uh, explanation. And it's super Nightmare on Elm Street-y. Yeah. Like, there's well, hallways the... that look exactly like the yeah. school. Her, there's Heather Thompson as one yes, of the victims. Yes, that's what I, yep, I had, that's just gonna say that. Like, yeah, and then it was like, you know, anymore. And this movie does, it does this a couple times where it commits a cardinal sin of reminding you very clearly of movies that are much better than it. Yeah. Like, they mentioned Candyman. And yeah! All that does is it reminds me that I could be watching Candyman right now instead. Ugh, um, yeah. And then, like you said, the Heather Thompson character, who's like one of the early victims in the movie, you're like, oh, yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street, a movie that I completely love and adore that is not this movie. Um, yeah. And very apt in that point, because I find I've heard that criticism before, like never or that quote rule before, like never remind your audience that they could be watching a better movie. Um, And that's always the risk with homage. But like, I love homage. I'm totally fine Mm -hmm. with certain homage and Easter eggs and quips. I watched a very, very cool movie recently called The Boy Behind the Door um, Mm -hmm. that I recommend. I don't know that it has a distribution yet, but I saw it at, uh, it's either, I think I saw it at Fantasia. Mm -hmm. Um, Really excellent movie. And there's a lot of Shining references in it, but the movie is nothing like The Shining. Like there's Mm -hmm. nothing in this movie that is at all reminiscent of The Shining. So when they do this bit where one of the villains is carrying an ax and it's shot exactly like The Shining, Mm -hmm. I know some people would see that and think like, oh, you're reminding me of a better movie, which I don't think. I was like, no, this is a really cool flex. They're showing you that we shot The Shining because this movie is nothing like The Shining. But then when you just name your character Heather Thompson in a movie that's very similar to Nightmare on Elm Street, Mm -hmm. you're reminding me that you're making a bad Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, homages are fantastic in a good movie. Mm -hmm. Um, This is not that. So it's just, it's just like, it definitely, it's one of those movies that at midnight when I'm watching it on a Saturday night has me questioning why I made this the premise of the podcast. It's like, why did I do this to myself? But, you know, they can't all be winners. Um, It happens. But, you know, I do like the, I'll say what I do like is the conceit behind the deaths where in the first two urban legend movies, the killer uses urban legends to set up their kills and like kind of stage them like that and they do reference um the first movie does get referenced in here like at one point someone has an article out talking about oh yeah at pendleton where there was that professor that like taught urban legends and then killed all his students to make it look like that to kind of 
gain notoriety. So I kind of actually did like that they not only referenced the movie, but twisted it a little bit because they mentioned in the second one how there's a cover up of in the of the what happened in the first movie. So that was a little bit I didn't mind. But what does happen here is Bloody Mary actually uses urban legends to kill her victims. So you have mm-hmm. like the boy in the tanning bed, which we'll talk about that scene in mm-hmm. a moment. Uh, you have like the girl with like the spider eggs in the face and you have different. Uh, there's one that was referenced in the second movie, like humans can lick two, which is weird. Yeah, that bizarre. comes up in this one as well, which is odd to recycle one of them. Which is that of all the ones to recycle, that was a weird one. Um, But she actually uses urban legends to like kill her victims in this one. Um, So I don't mind that premise. And I think that you could like do something really fun and really interesting with Mm -hmm. that idea. But it just wasn't, it just really wasn't the case here. It felt like, and I don't know much about the creation of this movie or, you know, where it landed, but I've heard you know, you hear this criticism a lot of this movie feels like it was written to be a movie that was later jammed into um, uh, another franchise, whatever you want to call it. So like this, you know, it feels like it didn't work when they're jammed together. I don't know that that's what happened here. I don't think so. Um, But it does feel like, especially because it's now urban legend versus a slasher, it does feel like a movie from another franchise jammed into this Mm -hmm. franchise. And it almost, to me, felt like the jamming in of the urban legends was like, and again, I'm speaking, not thinking that this is what happened, but how it felt was, this was a movie written about Bloody Mary. They were like, oh, that's an urban legend. Let's call it Urban Legends Bloody Mary. And then they were like, well, we have to make it more urban legendsy, so let's just throw in a few more. Yeah. Like it almost felt like they were added later as like instead of her regular kills, let's do a couple urban legend theme kills just to drive that home and make it fit in the franchise. So I don't think that's what they did, but that's how it felt. Yeah, and there's very little on the production of this movie that we could find. You know, we I don't usually use Wikipedia, but like that is my um that is like my last resort if I need to find something. But I went to I couldn't find anything else and the production notes are literally this production of the movie began November 20th, 2004. And then the only other line principal filming ended on December 16th, 2004. It was shot in Salt Lake city, Utah. That's it on the making (laughs) of the movie. There was like in the notes here, there's, there was a sequel that was planned called the ghosts of Goldfield. Um, Yep. And now that was supposed to be called Urban Legends Gottfield Murders. But because the DVD sales of this movie were actually pretty strong, Sony bought the rights back to the franchise name. And the movie was just released Ghosts of Goldfield later, which I have never heard of. I have so, never heard of it, but I feel like that continue to continue to drive the point home that this movie was a whole other. Exactly. That's what. Like, yeah, I think you're right. Now, this was a point where there were, between 2005 and 2008, there were like four different movies based on Bloody Mary. So there's Urban Legends, Bloody Mary. There's a 2006 movie, Bloody Mary, set in a psychiatric hospital. There is Dead Mary, which came out in 2007, based off a screenplay titled Bloody Mary. And then in 2008... There is the legend of Bloody Mary about a character who goes missing for good after playing the game Bloody Mary. I think that's so funny because I think 
Well, I'm trying to do the math of like my age and like when we played this game and when these movies all came out. But it definitely feels like it was targeting a certain generation if all these mm-hmm. movies came out so rapidly. I also think that probably answers why I have and haven't seen this movie. I'm picturing the like alphabetical order blockbuster shelf and just seeing so many bloody marys yeah. near each other and just like not grabbing one. this one <laughs> and i'm sure that if you like took the dvd covers for all of them and this is not something i have done but kids yeah, try it at same. home they would all have like the ghost face on the cover and then like the floating headshots of the cast underneath them like the, the most floating headshots that are kind of uh dark like they look like they, you can tell that they photoshopped shadows mm-hmm. onto certain black spots on their face yeah. is mm-hmm. like a classic <laughs> Yeah. So, oh God. Okay. A couple other notes about this movie. Like, part of the reason it feels so inert, and I put this here. So, every now and then, like, a studio will hold a contest where if you're a fan of a series, you can enter a contest and then, like, win a walk on role or a cameo role in, like, the filming of the next movie. Right. It's not an uncommon thing to have happen. Um, it felt like here that instead of winning, a spot where like, you might be one of the high schoolers at the homecoming dance at the beginning, mm-hmm. that you actually won like a significant speaking role because right. the performances here are so fucking terrible across the board. Like they are <laughs> yeah. so bad. And like most of the cast, if you go to the IMDB, they don't have a photograph of anyone in the cast for about half of the people that speak in this movie because mm-hmm. they just don't work ever again after this. It's bad it's really bad we were talking off air about the young woman at the tanning salon can you sum up her performance for me because the it's young just... woman at the tanning salon is quite literally i'm surprised she wasn't billed as a pair of tits that says the word totally mm-hmm. um and i was watching it again maybe this is camp and it just didn't land for me and maybe it was like very intentional and i didn't get i wasn't in on the gag i don't know uh, but it felt very mean-spirited um yeah, when uh, the character walks in to see this woman in the tanning salon, the first view we get of her is a sh- uh, close-up of her chest um, mm-hmm. before we see her face. And then later when he walks in, we see his perspective looking at her chest. It's um, literally eyes up here. My eyes are up here. Gang, yeah, but she's like good with it in the movie. She's like, I love that he thinks I'm hot. And she's like mm-hmm. playing with her like very 2000s long dangly belly ring. Um and she's got a zigzag part and chunky highlights, which I was like, yeah, I remember that look. I mean, I had, aside from her shirt, I had everything else that she has uh, mm-hmm. in her sense of style. But, and then her whole character is that she says totally and shut up on the and phone. Shut up. Shut, shut up. up. Oh shut my God. Totally up. shut up. I have um, never heard anyone do it. And I work with kids. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. That's what movies say we do, which is why, again, I... No, she didn't write it, which is why, again, I'm very stunned that this was mm-hmm. a woman created. So I don't know if it was like a parody. Like maybe this was like a very specific in-joke parodying how we portray women. Um, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Trying to give Mary Lampert the benefit of the doubt, but it very much felt like super, super uh, nasty. But And I know um, there are a couple moments, like you have the shot of the dude who's in the tanning bed salon and it's like yeah. shot from like the soles of his feet up. So there's a pretty big emphasis on his crotch in that oh scene. yeah big crotch shot and Huge. then there's like the i think it might even be the same character like having a shower in the um after like football practice and all the dudes are you know buck naked and yeah. it's like it's very like um gazy at that point so i kind of feel like maybe she's turning 
the male gaze around trying to make people uncomfortable, but there's nothing Maybe. else in the movie that would suggest there's that level going into it. Yeah, that exactly. There's nothing else in this movie to suggest that it's trying to subvert everything. And I think that's what I'm losing there is mm-hmm. that I want to give so much of this a benefit of the doubt, you know, maybe it's a joke that the girl who speaks out is the girl Mm -hmm. who's, you know, quote homely, even though it's Kate Mara. And maybe, um, you know, it's an in joke that this woman is literally a blonde pair of breasts. Like maybe those are jokes that the movie is making to kind of call us out. And that's kind of the benefit I want to give it, but exactly the movie's so low quality and so bad. And the story's so silly that I have no reason to suspect that. Um, and again, it's 2005. So we're not about to like say that that's the same as making this movie now. And I'm not going to go there and be like, you know, doing that thing where like, actually James Bond was sexist. I'm not going to do that. But (laughs) (laughs) um, yeah, it's so bizarre. And I don't think aside from the fact that the movie gives us no other reason to suspect that it's doing something that smart or that subversive. The other thing is that like, you really can't subvert specific tropes just by doing the same thing to the opposite it's just like you know you can't it's i'll I'll stick with the example of sexism just for the sake of simplicity you can't make a dude do what you make a woman do and act like that subverts anything because it's based on a power structure and a history and things like that so just because there's a shot of a guy in the shower does not mean that you subverted the uh the you know the gaze and movies um on women so how would you know by the way yeah like Hmm? how would you truly subvert it i guess would be the question that i would have i mean like that's the thing is like there's only so many tools in the arsenal and i'm trying to think if you really wanted to kind of subvert that trope or play with it or make of the audience feel like i think one of the examples i can think of would be in that movie um revenge that Mm -hmm. uh, is streaming on shutter like the end of that movie you have like your primary male killer who's like naked and covered in blood and terrified and like running around his home. And it's so hyper-focused on like his face and his body and his pectorals Mm -hmm. and like his muscles. But it's also like not done in a very sexy way. Like he's terrified for his life in that moment. Like that's the closest I can think of, of like really knocking that trope on its ass a little bit. Um, But I don't even know if that's accurate. I don't know the answer because I, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I know when it's wrong, but I don't know exactly how to tell you to do it correctly. Mm-hmm. I think it's tough because like I said, things are come in history. So often when, you know, you put a man in the same situation as you might put a woman, you're not so much subverting it as you are pointing out how silly and awkward it is. Mm-hmm. So when you shoot um, a man the same way you shoot a woman, um, you know, if we, if we had men do a butt pose on a poster, it would look really odd and funny. So it's not so much that you're actually subverting that as you're calling out how bizarre it is, which is really important as well, Mm -hmm. um, is that you're showing, you know, the absurdity of it and how clunky it looks. Like, I don't know if you saw, there was someone who switched the um, costumes in the Batman, one of the Batman um, video games. So that Batwoman's skin was on the Catwoman character and vice versa. So Batman was like walking with like a hip shake and being super sultry and sexy. and it looks bizarre. It didn't subvert anything that wasn't mm-hmm. subverting it. But you look at it and you're like, yeah, this looks so silly. But Bat- but Catwoman looks normal. Catwoman's right. just walking around. She's wearing Batman's skin. Or sorry, I guess the other way around. But, you know, so the character that now looks like Catwoman looks very normal. Mm-hmm. Because the guy just walks normally. Um, where, you know, the Batwoman skin on the Catwoman character looks ridiculous. Out of place, Because yeah. it's like, yeah. So... 
I think subversion is, is different because it's hard to subvert um, because it doesn't exist. It's only really to call it the absurdity. Like, you know, um, we want to talk about the gaze. Like I think Catherine Bigelow is someone when we talk about the male gaze and how that changed. Um, and um, uh, gosh, I think, like uh, in Point Break, if you watch Point Break, mm-hmm. um, the gaze in Point Break is really obvious looking back. I didn't notice it the first time I saw it, but Keanu Reeves just looks really hot and there's shots of him in a wet white t-shirt kind of leaning it's not shot the same way a woman is shot when she's Mm -hmm. meant to look sexy because it looks different um and I mean I'm kind of speaking in a very specific binary and I I don't know I'm not as nuanced as I might be uh, otherwise but Mm -hmm. that's a different gaze so she didn't necessarily subvert the female gaze or the male gaze but she's kind of showing a very different gaze than what we would have usually seen if this movie was made by somebody else um and I think, yeah, so I, again, I just don't think that you can subvert something that simply, I don't think that just by having a crotch shot, um, you've, you've really done any work to make up for the naked women that you've shown. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember, I won't even get into this anecdote. I, let's talk about Star Trek, um, Star Trek Into Darkness. There's that very clunky scene where Alice Eve is in her underwear for no reason. And uh everyone and that's a movie I very much love um, but it's a very awkward moment she's naked for no reason and uh she's shown she poses and freezes in her underwear and it's like don't look at me um and it's very odd and clunky and they really made fun of JJ Abrams for that and JJ as a response he showed um a scene that they had cut out where uh, Benedict Cumberbatch as Khan who's very buff for that role is mm-hmm. uh, in the shower kind of murder posing with water you know, dancing off his pecs. Mm -hmm. And it was a very funny response. I liked it. I was down with it. Um, you know, but it just that you also shot, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch naked does not change that you clunkily had Alice Eve. The other one as well. Like they don't cancel one another out. Yeah. Cause there's the history is different. The history of forcing your women characters to be naked for no reason Mm -hmm. is something that doesn't exist for how, you know, male uh, characters are shot. in particular, when I think of like nudity and slash, and there's like not this is nudity in this movie, mm-hmm. but like when I think of like nudity and slasher films and why that kind of went away in the late 90s, like there's two reasons for it. But like in the 80s, like the pri and I hate saying the primary, the assumed primary audience for these movies were like teenage boys, mm-hmm. totally discounting the fact that like women absolutely love these horror movies as well. And I should say like they, they assume the audience is primary like cisgender heterosexual teenage right, boys. Right, exactly. And if, and I, look, I'm not gonna lie, like I fell into this category where if I wanted to see like a really beautiful naked woman, I would probably watch a horror movie because at some point in that movie, one of the like the, like what Mike Vanderbilt from the Halloweenies Club uh, show calls like the stone cold fox of the movie, pretty good chance they were going to have a shower scene or be naked or there'd be sex. Right. Yeah. So oh, it was, yeah. it was primarily done, I think to entice teenage boys like, Hey, you know, are you interested in boobs? Then here you go. By the mm-hmm. mid to late nineties, what you have is number one, you start having these casts that were populated by um, actors that had at the very least had prominent television roles and they usually had them on primetime shows. And they're like, there's no way I'm getting naked in a movie because it'll absolutely like hurt my career, especially if I'm doing like, you know, like 
um, Neb Campbell wasn't going to get naked and scream because right. she was at that point doing Party of Five. It's Party not until a few years later that she does uh, not Wild at Heart, Wild Things, where you're like, holy shit. Um, the other thing is there's high-speed internet that's pretty readily available, and along with that becomes porn becomes readily available. You don't need to rent a movie anymore to look at naked people. Like You just have to press a button, and it's pretty much there in front of you. And that's why I've always thought that like when people to cry, why is there no nudity in these in these movies? Like, well, you don't really need it at this point. Like it was a marketing <laughs> tool. It's not necessary at this point. So get over it. Like get your fix elsewhere. Yeah, um, like there's naked people everywhere. But also, right. yeah, and I think there's a difference between, you know, people exploring their sexuality in other places um than just porn. Like that, you know, that is what it is, you know. Mm -hmm arguably i mean i have no issues with porn certainly but arguably um you know it's a very unrealistic thing yes. and so people shouldn't be getting their specific mm -hmm. interaction their sexual interactions only from that alone etc but um i guess when i, I say mean, porn i just mean in general that if you wanted to see nudity oh, somewhere yeah. growing up it's just a couple clicks away oh yeah, yeah yeah no i'm i yeah i agree like it's not that hard to find i just right. mean the other so what i mean by that is it about it being unrealistic what i mean is that movies can be places to explore those things as well mm -hmm. um and it definitely is my gosh right. we all talk about hot characters and we have ships and etc so right i don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that and i do think that it's fine that there were you know sex in movies is fine nudity movies is fine of course there's a lot of reasons why it's great it's all reasons why it's bad um but i think when you're continuing to kind of create these unrealistic objectification uh shots it's very odd like if you want to have a character in a shower that's not necessarily a bad thing but when you're like whole mm -hmm. movie centers on showing women's chests only with no comment or no gag or nothing it's kind of like all right mm -hmm. i don't know I'm sure that, like I said, had I uh, prepared, I could probably come up with a lot more eloquent yeah. analysis of this entire no, piece, but, but I, I do it's think- It's so readily like, there in this movie. Yeah, it's so there. And again, yeah. no part of me um, as a woman who's experienced right. things like this, where I've been in situations where women are objectified uncomfortably right. and the solution is always just to have like one naked dude standing at the back. And it's kind of like, no, no, no. Right. Um, you know, you haven't subverted or done anything because it's not, it's not equal. Like, you know, and you say to someone, how would you feel if when people talk to you, all they said to you is how hot you are? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, someone who hadn't experienced that saying back, you know, having a guy say back to me, like, I don't know, that'd be fine. It's a compliment. It's like, well, cause you don't, you've never experienced all the right. rest of it. So, and it's not to say that you can't have had that experience as a man or that it's unique to women. I mean, I'm sure there are versions of it for all genders. Um, but when I say the that, scales it's, you know, aren't balanced. Yeah, it's not exactly. It comes, there's a different history there. You know, someone mm -hmm. whistling at you, you might be like, oh, that would be a compliment. But because you've never experienced the other parts that come with what being whistled at, why that sucks. Mm -hmm. It's not just because it's annoying, right? right? So again, anyway, all of that just to say that, yeah, okay, there's an there's a crotch thought, but I don't think that, that necessarily uh, makes up for watching a bunch of teenage girls right. giggle while their stepfather talks about their virginity. But Maybe, and, like I said, there's a version of this where that was very much on purpose to show us how yeah. gross that was. I well, the other trope that's readily present here is like the magical Negro character where yeah. you have like this character uh, played by Tina Lefford of Grace, who was one of like Mary's friends as a high schooler. Like they show her as an adult and basically the two like lead kids in this movie basically like storm into her home demand information demand her to dig up past trauma 
Mm -hmm. then they keep showing back up. Like the boy just like walks into her house in the middle of the night and breaks in. And when she's like, why are you in my house? He's like, oh, your door was open. Like folks, I don't know where things, how things work, where you live. And maybe Toronto is different. I don't know. But <laughs> no. leaving your door open, like unlocked, no, is that... not an invite for people to just kind of walk in and demand that they tell you things. No. And I might have witnessed this wrong. So I'm going to try as lightly as possible mm -hmm. um, and ask you if you had the same experience as I did. Because I might have just like blinked and missed something. When they first go to her house, they come very much, and it's very much that typical scary movie thing where they go to the person's house who's much older now and mm -hmm. they ask them and they get the door slammed in their face and then later that person lets them in. That's a very typical mm -hmm. uh, thing that we see a lot. And you know, they say who they are and why they wanna talk and she slams the door in her face, his face. And then the character, the, the brother says power to the people and then yes. she lets him in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought that was just so it, clunky and just it, like that was oh, exactly okay. it. And then when they walk in, like she like you know regularly takes uses weed, and they both the two kids look at one another, and it's two thousand five, I guess, mm -hmm. so whatever. Like one of them even does like the you know holds his two fingers to his lips and inhales and like makes a joke about it, and it's like these two little shits are like breaking into this woman's home um demand and like they keep coming back later and over and over again demanding like give me a ride to the school because like that's where the body is and she's like i don't know these fucking kids and then you're going to come in there and judge her lifestyle like she literally doesn't have a purpose in this movie except to like be an expedition an exposition dump and then also to like give the kids she's like a, an uber driver basically for the kids yeah. you know? she's a very so like convenient exposition dump and a convenient character and yeah it's weird because it almost feels like her her character is a shallow parody of what they drafted mm -hmm. um which i thought was pretty dumb but i'd be curious to read um someone else's take obviously yeah. i don't have insight yeah. um I don't have as much insight into the black characters, um, but I'd be really curious to read a take on that. And I actually have a suspicion that someone who I really admire probably wrote about it. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it was so odd. And I kind of, the reason why the power to the people thing felt so weird to me. And again, I'm commenting from a very limited um, uh, perspective on that. Is it just to me felt like it was so minimizing that like the yes. power to the people slogan was so shallow that all you had to do was say it and it was like a password into yes. our house. And then it's like, oh open sesame at that point. Yeah, and like that's all that it meant to like, her. Is like when he's so trying silly. to like butter her up later on, he's like, you know, you really look like that woman who was in Foxy Brown. And she's just like, and I think at that point she calls us, you little shit, just like calls him out on it. Well, that's um, good at least. <laughs> but it was just like, it was just, it was so clunky. Yeah, um, it just felt really clunky and silly and unnecessary. And the, I don't know. The last thing, yeah. the last thing I have about this movie before we put it to rest is like, yes. so the killer is revealed to be the stepdad. He um, ends up like he killed Bloody Mary as a, as a young kid. Yeah. And then you find out that like he is he doesn't kill the other kids he just kills his stepson mm -hmm. um and then he tries to kill um kate mara's character i think samantha whatever her name is in the movie i can't even remember now yeah I don't um know. because yeah. like he doesn't want the past dug up and the movie ends like it has a happy ending and then like um race and samantha are sitting at the cemetery and like 
the girl does not seem in the slightest broke up that her twin brother is dead not even like no mention of like oh my god my stepdad murdered my twin brother yeah and then it ends and it just says directed by mary lambert and you're like what the fuck again especially coming from mary lambert who like really played she does a really great job of playing on like the grief and emotion and mm-hmm. how that motivates the characters like i mean i'll be speaking for the pet cemetery movies the it's the loss and the grief sure it was you know the stephen king story but it's the loss and the grief that motivates the characters to do bizarre things and that's what works in both those movies so it is really odd that that's very um not there here Mm um yeah i don't what (laughs) and that twist is bizarre again it felt like a very late coming nightmare on elm street because when they're talking to um uh, what's her name? We just said it. When they go to the to Grace's house, um, they talk to Grace and she talks about kind of getting the revenge um, on her family members. You do that math. That's all I needed to hear was Grace mm-hmm. saying that to know that, oh, okay, Bloody Mary is taking revenge out on the children mm-hmm. of the men who did this to her the first time. Yeah. Um, and then so when they continue to drive that home as if it's a twist... Like what? Yeah, didn't. <laughs> I was like, it. yeah, I know. <laughs> All right, I have nothing else on this movie. Me neither. I'm done with it. Rest. So see you later, Urban Legends. So Mary. Yeah, see ya, Urban Legends, a series. So let's talk a little bit about what we have next. Up yeah. next, we have a series that I think people have wanted us to cover for a long time, um, Ooh, and okay. I am excited to cover this one. So we are going to be covering the five movies that make up the Final Destination series. Woo! I think I rewatched them a year or so ago, and I remember I had enjoyed them where they had come out, but I think I had forgotten how much fun these movies are. They are just pure popcorn cinema in the best possible way. So we have like a number of really great guests lined up. We're going to be joined... Um, by uh, Ryan Larson from uh, the We Are Horror Zine. Uh, each of the members, uh, the two members of the Horror Queer show, uh, Joe and Trace, they're going to be on different episodes. Brian Kuiper from Bloody Disgusting, B- BJ Coangelo is going to be on. So we have like already lined up a ton of guests, and there's others as well. So uh, Blake from Score to Death. So Greg Mucci have... and Jenny Nolf. So some yes. really great voices so... that I no firsthand are very obsessed with the final destination yeah. series so i think that's this is going to be a lot exciting. of fun yeah this is going to be a lot of fun to do i'm definitely looking forward to like diving into these movies again and chatting about the five of them i know there's a sixth one that's in the work so we'll be returning we to will it at some talk point about that in the future um but you know that's what's coming up for us next um for our patrons Lindsay and i were talking just before the show and it looks like our Patreon episode this month is going to be Krampus to keep everybody in that holiday spirit. So that's going to be a lot of fun to watch. And hopefully, and I think there's enough mythology and history there to make it a really fun Patreon episode. Um, So Lindsay, what do you have that you uh, are working on right now that our listeners can dig into? You're yeah, guesting again, on like 10 shows this week. I'm guesting on lots of things that I'm I'm still sitting on uh, because you know a lot of these um, podcasters are uh, 
very much about the secrecy and the surprise drops. Not that I'm a surprise, but they like to do their episode subjects as a surprise, but Mm -hmm. stay tuned. I actually had a very, very fun episode um, that I recorded of something recently. So please stay on my Twitter, smash Travis, S-M-A-S-H-T-R-A-V-E-S. And I will be Mm -hmm. sure to let you know when that drops because it's one of my favorite subjects and I cannot wait uh, for people to hear it. I had so much fun. Um, So a few more episodes of things coming up um, that I can't wait to share with you guys. And I'll give you more details as time goes on. As always, my writing you can find it on my Twitter, but I will be on What to Watch, Pajiba, and CG Magazine the most, uh, and a few other places. Um, so follow me on social media if you need to see. Excellent. So yeah, you can what follow, about you? You can follow me at Mike underscore Snoonian, uh, and also at this account, um, Pod and Pendulum over on Twitter. We have a Facebook group, and I'm trying to like post more on there, like questions of the day, what are we watching? Mm-hmm little things here or there. And it's like a really, what's really fun, it's it's basically what happened was on my other show, um, a lot of the listeners there just started to join um, the pod and the pendulum group. And I'm like, I really neglect this group. So I should probably do stuff with it. Um, it so it's become like a nice little space where there's some good conversations about what we're watching and things like that. Go to facebook.com and just search pod and the pendulum and you can find us there. Um, you basically can hear me every week here and then every week on the psychoanalysis podcast. So we are in the middle of our Killer Kids Month, our episode when we need to talk about Kevin just came out. Um, later tonight, we're recording about Better Watch Out and that will come out uh, in a couple weeks from the time that we're recording this. It'll be out in December. Um, we have our comfort horror episodes in between our big mental health deep dives. So we this month we have like Mel from the Loser Club talking about her love for the Hitcher. Uh, we just recorded with Dan McCaffrey from the Losers Club on his love of gremlins. And that was actually a really interesting conversation. Our friend Lara points it out, you know, some of the more problematic aspects of the movie um, overall and how you can still really enjoy a movie despite it having some really dated concepts and we haven't recorded it yet but on christmas day we're dropping a bonus episode of um black christmas with guest joe lipsit from the horror queer so all of that is over on psychoanalysis um that is i've got some other things i need to start working on and get cracking on but you know it's been a year folks (laughs) it's Um, been a tough one so to our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this discussion today. Um, please, the best thing you can do for us that is free is if you, wherever you get your podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to us. You know, a five-star rating and a few kind words goes a long way to helping new listeners find us. So if you can take like 30 seconds and do that right now, that would be fantastic. Um, there will be, I'm sure at some point in this episode, I've inserted a Patreon plug, but remember, go to patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum, become a member today, get access to all our bonus content. I'm going to be restructuring that. The tiers will be the same, but I think we're going to look for a way to add more content for our listeners in the coming year ahead. Thanks for listening. We're back next week with the final destination. Take care.